700 years before Jesus Christ was born, Israel was having a bit of a religious revival. The temple was crowded. Contributions were over budget for the first time in years. A crowded temple, contributions over budget, my goodness, what could be better? The people must have thought that God was extremely pleased with what was going on. Like I heard a preacher say one time, numbers and money, noses and nickels, God is happy. That's what it's all about in this religion business, isn't it? The one with the biggest building wins. Well, apparently, folks, that's not exactly the way God sees things. During this period of a religious revival that was going on in Israel, there were lots of folks paying lip service to God with their religion. But there was something very important that was missing. And that was goodness and mercy, humility, and walking with God. Offerings were being made. People were showing up. They were practicing all the outward trappings of religion. And in the middle of all of this, a simple country preacher by the name of Micah comes along. He was a contemporary of Amos and Hosea and Isaiah. And like those three men, he exerted a great influence on religious thinking. And like Amos, Micah lived in the country. But Amos was a shepherd and Micah was a farmer. And being from the country, he was a little bit naturally suspicious of the city slickers, the city folk. And what happened with Micah was it wasn't long before that suspicion actually became hot indignation. Because you see, it was men from the city that were pillaging and plundering the farmers. Small farmers, some of whom that even Micah knew personally, probably. And so this preacher from the country soon began to look upon the cities of Jerusalem and Samaria as cesspools of iniquity and injustice. And like his fellow prophets, Amos, Hosea, and Isaiah, Micah felt a deep sense of mission for God. Micah felt himself called up of God to denounce the evils that were blighting his people. In fact, he had this to say in Micah chapter 3 and verse 8, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of judgment and of might to declare unto Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. But the ministry of Micah was far more involved and and far deeper than a ministry of denunciation. The message of this man of God was also a message that was constructive. 
This man was inspired to define the will of God for the individual and for the world. And he did it with a beautiful simplicity. In our text this morning in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, Micah asks a very simple question. What doth the Lord require of thee? O man, what is good? And what doth the Lord require of me? Or to put it another way, what does, what does it need? What is necessary to please God? What does God want? And as Micah answers the question, he passes right by ritual and he passes right by sacrifice and Those were a fundamental part of the worship of that day. And he gives a very simple and profound answer. Listen to the full text in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Now let me ask you, is that not a beautifully simple passage of Scripture? It's something that any child can understand, and yet it's something that's so profound. It's something that the very wisest of men cannot possibly ignore. It's something that every man and every woman in every day and time should know. You know, in the realm of religion I've observed over the past few years, that some folks love to take something simple and make it complicated. They want to take something simple in the realm of religion and make some kind of a vague and unreal concept out of it. But folks, the religion of this man of God is not vague. The religion of Micah is not unreal, and the religion of Micah is not complicated. Here is a religion that fits into life as we know it and as we live it. So what does the Lord Lord require of thee to do justly? What does that mean? Justly means to do justice. And justice is nothing more than fair-mindedness in action. It's the outward expression of inward honesty and sincerity. It's the kind of conduct that's admired by every unwarped mind on the footstool of God. The concept of doing justly, of playing the game fairly, That's something that's to cover all of our life. When we're children, when we watch children, when we watch boys and girls play games, they're to play the game fairly. And anybody that cheats in a game is likely to cheat in matters of much greater importance than a game. And the same thing is true of an adult. 
You know, there are few sharper tests of justice than a golfer with his ball stuck in the rough and no one looking. That's one of the greatest tests of justice that there can be. But justice also deals with business relationships. This was what filled Micah with such hot indignation, a lack of justice between man and man. Looking around, Micah saw priests who were pattering oracles for pay. He observed judges that would pronounce, or prophets that would pronounce a blessing if they were paid, and a curse if they were not paid. Judges that were taking bribes, and rich taking advantage of poor peasants. What Micah has to say is, Something that is needed as much in our day and time as it was in His day. There needs to be justice between employer and employee. Folks need to remember that old time honored concept of an honest day's pay for an honest day, an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. And we need fairness between buyer and seller and Fairness on both sides of the counter in every transaction. But more importantly, we need to practice justice in our judgments of one another. Do we remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7? Judge not that you be not judged. For with whatsoever judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with whatsoever measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. What does Jesus mean by that stern warning? I do not believe that Jesus is forbidding our reaching a conclusion as to the degree of worth or worthlessness of men and women with whom we come in contact. Because those kinds of conclusions are necessary by one of Jesus' very next commands. Because He tells us to not give what's holy to the dogs, and He tells us not to cast our pearls before swine. And we can only follow that command by reaching some conclusion as to who is swinish and who is not swinish. So what exactly is our Lord forbidding here? He's forbidding judgments that are harsh and unfair. He's forbidding us to play the role of the fault finder or the carping critic that we talked about last Lord's Day. He's forbidding us to reach conclusions that have no basis or foundation in fact. He's forbidding those hasty criticisms that are born of ignorance. And prejudice. Jesus urges to judge righteous judgment. Most, if not all of us here this morning, belong to the church. And I like that concept. For someone to belong to the church. 
Because when we say we belong to the church, that means the church has a claim on us. The church has a claim on us because of our own voluntary choice. Because we made, as it were, the good confession and we put our Lord on in baptism. And therefore, we ought to honor the claim that the church has on our lives. And since we belong to the church, and since the church has a claim on our lives, we have, are you listening? We have no right to do anything that would weaken, if not wreck, the church. It is the will of God that we should be just. And justice for the Christian is a badge of character. God is eager for us to be just. Because God is a just God. And He wants us to be like Him. He's no respecter of persons. And He yearns for us to be like He is. And God knows. God knows what injustice will do to all human relationships. To build on injustice is to build on a time bomb. Because it's going to sooner or later explode and blow up and blow everything to pieces. There can be no lasting organization of any kind that is not founded upon justice. So it's no wonder that Jesus wants us to be just one toward another. He says we are to do justly and to love mercy. The American Standard Version translates the passage to love kindness. God wants us to be kind. If justice is fair-mindedness in action, then kindness is something better still. Remember the Sunday night series we finished just a few weeks ago on becoming a 1 Corinthians 13 Christian? A Christian with a heart founded in love? That's what kindness is. Kindness is love in action. Kindness is a child of love. And Paul would write and say, love suffereth long and is kind. Now you think about it. To merely be kind doesn't really sound all that glamorous, does it? But folks, there is nothing that would do more to sweeten life than just plain old everyday kindness. Kindness is also godlike. You see, our God is an infinitely kind God. Over and over and over, the Bible tells us that God is kind. 
And we receive our assurance of the kindness of God in the fact that God is like Jesus. And above everything else, our Lord was kind. In the book of Acts, Dr. Luke sums it up in one sentence when he talks about our Lord and he says He went about doing good. That's just another way of saying Jesus went about being kind. There was one day that Jesus told the story of man that of a man that, that all of us are willing to call a good man. And yet the man that all of us are willing to call a good man was a Samaritan. He was a part of a mongrel race of people. Have you ever pondered? Have you ever wondered why all men in every age agree to call this man good? Because after all, That's the one snapshot, the one and only snapshot we have of His life and His character. But that one snapshot shows us what could be called a typical pose in this man's life. In that one picture recorded in the Gospel according to Luke, that Samaritan is performing an act of kindness. And so we therefore call Him good. But, keep in mind something else about kindness. Even though kindness is always good, it does not mean that kindness is always goody-goody. Sometimes, Kindness has to wound. When the surgeon comes into the room of that man or that woman with acute appendicitis, continuous shots of morphine would probably be the easiest way out. But out of kindness, the surgeon resorts to the knife. Sometimes, we have to call attention to things in the lives of those we love that are painful. Things that can cause them to lose their soul if they persist in it. And therefore, out of kindness, we warn them of wrong living. Wrong attitudes and an errant way of life. And on its face, that can seem harsh. But it's done because of a love for someone's soul. Kindness. Whether its face is harsh or gentle, is always, always, Love in action. And the field for us to exercise kindness is everywhere. It's all around us. There's seldom a day that's so uneventful that we do not have the opportunity to use kindness. 
It's needed everywhere. At work, at home, in the church, at play with everyone we come in contact with. And the closer our relationship is to each other, the more it's needed. Because kindness enriches the giver and kindness enriches the recipient. It makes our living together a whole lot easier. Kindness is something that can often save us from what is often the sharpest pang of separation that we ever have. When someone we love reaches the end of the long journey and crosses the chilly Jordan to the great beyond. I could not tell you how many times over the last 40 plus years I've stood beside an open casket and watched those whose greatest grief at the loss of a friend or a loved one Their greatest grief was brought about by the memory of unkind words and harsh actions and unkind things that had been done and said. Kindness is a great luxury. But more than being a great luxury, kindness is a necessity. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the story of a certain rich man that lifted up his eyes in torment. And this man didn't lift up his eyes in torment because he was a common criminal. He was there because he didn't have enough kindness to help a beggar at his gate. And in the picture Jesus gives of the final judgment in Matthew 25, There were some there who received no welcome, but they were turned away. And they were turned away because their hearts were so void of kindness that their presence would have changed any kind of heaven into a hell. This is on the final exam. No place can be heavenly where hearts are unkind. Kindness is a necessity. And Micah says to do justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly with God. And there's some folks that, it's so sad, but there's some folks that for them this walking with God seems unnecessary and unreal. They want to think that being just and kind should be enough. According to them, being just and kind, well, that's a religion I can get my teeth into. But this walking with God, why is that necessary? Why is that God's will for our lives? Because you see, God wants us to walk with Him because we are the children of His love. God wants our fellowship. And He is so eager for our fellowship that no gift we can give Him substitutes for ourselves. When that shepherd discovered that one sheep was missing, he could not rest. He braved the dangers of the wilderness to find it. 
You see, folks, God knows that it is only as we walk with Him, it is only as we walk with God that we will really be just and kind. Justice and kindness at their very best flow out of a fellowship with the God of heaven. So my resolution for today should be that I would be just and kind and live in fellowship with God. And that fellowship with God, it comes about when I become a Christian. When in simple trusting faith I exhibit my faith by repenting of sin, confessing the name of Christ and being buried with Him in baptism. That fellowship with God begins when I make Jesus Christ the Lord and Master of all of my life. And I've said it a thousand times. If Jesus is not the Lord and Master of all of your life today, Jesus is not Lord and Master at all in your life today. And now's the time to make Jesus Lord and Master of all of your life. If there's changes you need to make, do it now as we stand.